0: hello my name is david runciman and this is talking politics today's talking politics guide is with diane coyle economist and professor of public policy and she is going to be explaining to us how to understand economic well-being Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, gift subscriptions to the LRB for yourself or somebody else start from just 19 Find our best offers and a reading list to accompany today's episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Maybe we could start with a puzzle that's been written about In the last few weeks, I've seen in more than one place this being discussed, which is the question of what's going on in America, which is a country at the moment that has very strong economic growth, measured by GDP, well above 3%, and very low unemployment, the two classic measures of economic well-being. It's growing fast, and lots of people have jobs. And yet on other measures, it looks like a disaster zone. So life expectancy is falling, which is an incredible fact for a developed society, there is an epidemic of drug overdose and of suicide on lots of measures of not just physical but mental well-being it looks like a country in real trouble its politics is frankly deranged Um, so on the social indicators it looks terrible and yet the economic indicators are suggesting that things are going really well how do we think about the gap what's going on
1: The reason we care about economic indicators at all is not because they're a good thing in themselves, but because they are normally correlated with good outcomes like longer life expectancy and better health and lower infant mortality and all of that. I can't off the top of my head think of another example of a rich and growing in GDP terms country where life expectancy has been falling, as it has in the States for a couple of years now. So it tells you that There is a disconnect going on between the conventional economic measures and what's actually happening in the wider economy and society. And we've known for a long time that GDP is a sort of approximate measure of economic welfare. There are well-known challenges with it. It doesn't measure environmental externalities, resource use. It doesn't measure what's going on inside the household rather than inside the market. So it's always been flawed, but clearly... Something is changing as well, and it's not a good measure of economic welfare anymore. Part of it might be distributional. It might be that all of the GDP gain is going to a very small group of people. And that's something that, of course, Thomas Piketty's book brought attention to in in 2014. And clearly, the US is one of the most unequal and has had a growing inequality at a faster pace than other rich, developed economies.
0: Is it possible that, as you say, GDP doesn't pick up what's going on in the household? And if we broaden that a little, that actually it's missing quite a lot of where human activity is taking place now, that it's a kind of 20th century idea of, of where people do stuff. And lots of stuff is happening in places that we're not picking up on, good or bad.
1: I think that's right. And one of the contributory factors is the new technology. It's always been the case that in the conventional GDP framework, we've thought of the economy as being what businesses and the government do, and the household is its own domain. And that was clearly never properly true, and all kinds of economically valuable activities have occurred in the household anyway. The technologies are changing that. They are changing work patterns, and some of it's bad, the gig economy and the ability to exploit more easily certain kinds of labour. There's always been that category of contingent, badly paid, insecure work, and and that has been made easier by digital technology. The other side of that is that people are able to do more things in the home that they used to purchase in the market, or create more economic output in the home that used to be done in the market. And that's everything from you do your own banking online, so all of those transactions that a bank clerk used to do you can do for yourself, but also things like creating open source software or creating media content that's now going on in the household sector. So there are really big shifts happening, and some of it's good and some of it's bad. We don't have any good economic statistics collection about all of that. I think we've been missing a lot of it, and it's been invisible to policymakers. And this is not just the States, of course, it's sort of the other Western economies as well. So it's been invisible, and it's changing quite rapidly and changing the connection to people's underlying economic welfare.
0: And as you say, one of the things that's changing is the nature of work. So the other indicator in the United States is that unemployment is at historically low levels. People sometimes say it's a false measure because it doesn't capture the number of people who have withdrawn from the labour market altogether, which is growing. But it also doesn't capture the quality of the jobs. It's just a measure of this thing called work. Which do you think is the bigger issue here? If there is a disconnect, is it that we're missing the number of people, including the number of men, who have given up on the idea of work? Or are we missing the ways in which some jobs are making people really miserable?
1: Well, we can be missing both. And so I think there's probably... Do you think we are missing both? I think we probably are. And there is a sort of bimodal distribution of what's happening to work as well. And for some people, the um, freedom, the flexibility the scope to earn more that's all been fantastically and enabled by these technologies and for other people it's been more easily exploited having to do two or three jobs rather than just one zero hours contracts and all of that stuff and I think they're both going on.
0: And the idea that particularly there might be a group of young people maybe even of young men who no longer think of work as something which is going to be for them. There is this sort of image that there's a generation who think that if they can, they'll play computer games, because there aren't going to be jobs for them. Is that something we should take seriously? I mean, should we be pushing back against this idea that worries about employment are slightly overblown? Because in this country, too, we're we're living in this jobs boom.
1: I I have mixed views about that. I think the potential for more rewarding and creative work is, is fantastic. There was a fantastic series by John Harvey Jones called Troubleshooter back in the day. I
0: remember it well.
1: And he visited a factory and he said, here are all these people, the product's terrible, they're really bored at work, they're not putting in any effort, and you go visit them at home and they are building the Taj Mahal out of matchsticks and writing songs for their guitar. So there's all that untapped creativity. And if we can get rid of that pattern of really boring nine-to-five jobs that you'd hate and have the creativity turn into what earns your living, that would be fantastic. So there could be some good things about young people not thinking work is this dull thing that you're going to do you Not until going you're, to the career service and be told you can be an actuary. Oh, you could be an accountant, yes. Funny, nothing we wrong, both nothing wrong that. with accountancy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As you also said just now, the other issue with these big economic statistics is distributional in that they, they give you one number for a country. And they don't pick up on what may be going on, which is increasing divergence of experience, and also increasing potentially geographical divergence. So the story is just completely different in different parts of the United States. Some bits are doing fantastically, some bits, it's it's a disaster zone. It's also true in this country, the idea that the UK economy is something that you can tell a single number about, seems absurd, and yet we carry on doing it.
1: I think the geographical dimension is particularly interesting. And we have always focused on the national averages and aggregates, but it's pretty clear that um, here too there's been a divergence of experience between some parts of the country and others, and it's what underlies not just the Brexit vote here and the Trump vote in the States, but what's happening across all of the developed economies. And people do exist in particular places, most people don't want to leave their place, they want to have a decent job where they live, and I think there has probably been some overlapping of of bad things going on in the economy affecting the same places. The technologies mean that in the knowledge-based intangibles economy, there's more and more of a premium on being in the big city, working next to other people who are doing the same kind of work and you exchange ideas and all that. So those forces of agglomeration, as we economists call it, have been getting stronger. People are doing better in cities, so there's a city town rural split that's going on and at the same time that all the good jobs have been concentrating in cities in this country public services have been concentrating in cities because the cuts are falling heaviest on the same kinds of quotes left behind towns and all of the decent jobs that go with those public services are therefore going and so I think it's getting worse and we've not had the statistics to focus on this before. It's really hard to get a good picture of what's going on geographically. And we're trying here in the Bennett Institute to put some data around this. In this country, we've never had very good, fine-grained geographical economic data. And it's terribly hard to collect it as well. So, you know, it'd be expensive to correct that. But if we had had some of it before the Brexit vote and politicians had had a clearer picture of what was happening, you know, who knows what the counterfactual history would have been.
0: There is that anecdote that I've heard from more than one person of the Brexit campaign, where at a meeting, someone tried to persuade people that there was a good reason to vote remain because of what it might do to GDP. And the answer came back, well, that's your GDP, it's not my GDP. Is there a sense in which we should, because we're personalising so much, be thinking of measurements of economic well-being? Maybe they're not personalised, but that they Map what's going on in other parts of our lives, that they are much more closely related to the divergence of experience? Is there a way we could do that? After we're drowning in data, Mm -hmm. can we not... Okay, you can't say to someone, your GDP and my GDP, but you can at least respect the fact that the experiences are so different.
1: Yes, and the kind of data that's needed to do that is starting to become available and people are starting to work on it. So looking at where are the productive places of employment what are people earning in particular places what's the distribution of income and wealth at a a really micro level so we can track that I think we should just ask how micro are we talking individuals so we are so are so so we can do that or starting to be able to I think the geography of it is also important because particularly if you're on a low income having access to public capital and public services is all the more important to you so understanding the geography of of where are the good schools where is the good public transport connectivity and the broadband connectivity and there too just starting to be able to get a handle on that but there's a lot of work to do to both collect the data using new techniques and understand it and process it.
0: Do you think if we had more of that data it would impact on politics in the sense that The other thing that we have done for a long time is take collective national decisions based on statistics about the state of the nation. This is a very centralised Britain, but not just Britain. Most Western democracies are increasingly centralised. It's very hard, actually, to reinvigorate local government. Is this one way that, if you desegregated the economic data, it would start to become self-evident that decisions needed to be more local too?
1: I think that process is underway in in the UK with both uh, devolution to the nations and English city devolution and I I think that will gain momentum and that as local politicians focus more on the problems in their immediate area. They will both collect more information about it and demand more powers to do something about it. And there's a trade-off there because you want some redistribution within a nation. You want the more prosperous areas to be giving more money to the less prosperous areas. But I think, I think that will definitely come and it will be healthy because you can't have all the information that you need sitting in the centre. As I keep saying to people, we think that we are measuring what we see, but we're actually doing it the other way around. We're seeing what we measure. And if you only see the averages and the aggregates, you just don't know what's going on.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: Apart from geographical inequalities, what do you think is the biggest thing that we're missing at the moment? If there was one thing that you would like to be included in our measurements of economic well-being that's just off the radar now, what would it be?
1: I would have to pick measures of wealth because we don't have a good handle on the sustainability of economic growth. And it's like operating a company without a balance sheet. If you don't know how much you're running down your assets, you don't know how long you can keep on growing.
0: And we don't. Do we really not know that?
1: No, it's, it's incredibly partial. We have some figures on financial wealth. We're starting to get some figures on natural assets. But we don't know what infrastructure we have and what state it's in. We don't know what the state of the public sector balance sheet is, given all the liabilities that it will have to meet in the future. We don't know really what human capital we have. We don't know.
0: And if we did know, how different might our politics be? I mean, is this a way of, apart from anything else, getting longer term yes. thinking built into what tends to be short term political coverage? Exactly, that's calculus.
1: exactly right. It would demonstrate that trade off between the short term and the long term. And it would give politicians a way to talk to voters about investing and making some long term decisions.
0: Is it true that the kind of economic statistics that we have also tend to be the kinds of economic statistics that are useful for politicians thinking about electoral cycles? Because there does seem to be a Potentially a match there that politicians are attracted to these things because they can talk about unemployment being up or down over the cycle, growth having improved over the cycle, and so on. Um, And we don't have the longer term data because the politicians don't want it. Uh,
1: The political business cycle used to be very strong, but I think to go back to the start of our conversation, that's breaking down. And the so called misery index, the combination of unemployment and inflation. That just doesn't seem to have the same electoral consequences that it used to. So maybe there's an opportunity now. And if you talk to politicians, they feel as trapped and distanced by GDP and being, you know, hung on what's happening to GDP growth just as much as, as the voters do. So I think everybody understands that it's not really an adequate measure of how the country's doing anymore.
0: Is there a possibility at some point in the future that people would not be freaked out by the thought of a recession? No, Given that a recession yeah, is defined in GDP that's terms. That's an
1: interesting question. And I think um, I think probably not. I think people do want to have that momentum, that growth momentum. But they might be willing to accept less of it if you can see that there are going to be longer term consequences of investing in something.
0: So there is a thought that this way of running a society, a liberal democratic society, does require economic growth as one of its essentials. Yeah. Because there are people, obviously, who also think that we need to actually get away from the idea of growth altogether, particularly when we're thinking about natural capital and yeah. you know, long-term resource questions. So You're I, I, not yeah, saying that?
1: I'm not saying that. I tend to think that liberal democracies do require some growth, and particularly when you're starting from a point of inequality, as we are at the moment. So you need to have some scope for changing distribution within a growing pie rather than redistributing a fixed one. The other point about the degrowth movement is that they forget about innovation and the the important part that innovation plays in growth. So to take it to its extreme, if you said we can't have any growth, you're saying we can't have any new products or any new medicines without taking
0: something away. You mentioned the misery index. Is there any possibility that we could have a meaningful happiness index? So we get measures, the UN does measures of well-being of different countries, the Scandinavian countries tend to come out on top of those. Sometimes they are called happiness indexes, indices. But For a national economy, is there a way that we could talk about economic measurement where people really did believe it tracked more how they were feeling and whether they were happy than the current measures do?
1: I'm a bit sceptical about measuring happiness directly. It's obviously affected by all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the economy. And the studies famously show that people hate commuting and they like having sex. So do you want to have a government policy to have have more sex Um, and um, there are some cultural factors that we don't understand and it's also the case that people adjust back so if you suddenly make them incredibly happy by giving them a ton of money or an enjoyable experience it will increase their happiness for a while but then they'll adjust back to a set point so there are psychological factors in there too so it's interesting but I don't think it's a uh, variable that's useful for policy purposes.
0: Is there a risk, given that the economic measures that we have, one of their great advantages has always been their simplicity, that they're relatively easy to understand and easy to track over time, that we're about to enter a world where it gets sufficiently complex that it becomes harder to do things, because there are rival pictures of how the economy is doing. And we know we're living in a political environment where if you give people rival pictures, you will get partisan groups. Mm -hmm. I mean, there will just be division as to your truth and my truth.
1: But the alternative is having something simple that nobody believes and doesn't give you a true picture of what's happening.
0: So we have no choice.
1: I think we have no choice. One of the research and policy questions is how do you have that public discussion about a much more complicated statistical and economic environment?
0: And what's your sense of it? So how would we get people to have confidence in new kinds of economic measures? Because we're also living through an age where, as we famously know, there is some, maybe a lot of suspicion of economic experts and economic expertise. So if part of this is about people believing the figures that they're told, how do we go about engendering that?
1: Well, I think the distrust comes about because of the disjunction between what the figures and the experts are saying about the economy is doing fine, and people's lived experience. So the better you measure, the more you're able to rebuild the trust in what the figures are telling you, I think. I don't think there is as much distrust of experts in general as people are saying you know the polling evidence on this is actually a bit mixed professors like you and I are still among the most trusted people
0: and politicians it has to be said like say plucking a name out of the air Michael Gove are less Less well -trusted trusted than the experts than you and I
1: yes or some of the experts at any rate but the more um the official story about what's happening tallies with people's experience then the more trusted it will be
0: how much of this do you think both the mistrust but also just that sense of disconnect is still the legacy of the crash because 2008 and what happened subsequently was a huge break point in people's experiences are we still living with the legacy of that will it take a long time for people to recover their faith that the stories that they're told about the economy might be true
1: I think episodes like the crash have a very leave a very deep scars indeed, not least because the policymakers who live through it carry that lesson over for the rest of their career and continue to react in ways that are, that are prompted by it. But I would say actually it's a an even older legacy than that, and it's the legacy of deindustrialisation in the 1980s and 1990s, and the fact that there was never an effective policy response to the destruction of swathes of jobs and all of the consequences that then got embedded in particular places in our economies, the Rust Belt or or the north of England. And a vicious circle then starts of people who don't have employment, the schools become worse, so the the kids don't get a good education, ill health, lack of transportation, all of those things come together and have, have scarred those places massively. And that's been there now since the 80s. The only way I think to tackle that would be to put a lot of public money into improving the quality of public services and infrastructure there. And the other policy challenge is if we've got another wave of automation coming, which most experts think is going to happen in some parts of the economy, we'd better have a better policy response this time, or we just store up even more trouble for the future. So the crash, I think, the effects of the crash sit on top of the very long lasting effects of deindustrialisation.
0: It is often said that the next wave automation isn't being discussed nearly as much as it should be. It's being discussed by policymakers, but it hasn't really entered political conversation much. It wasn't a big part of the Brexit discussion. It didn't come up in the last general election. Do you sense that we are better placed to work that one through before it happens? Are we, are we talking about it enough?
1: We're talking about it in my area of economics quite a lot, but in the wrong sort of way. And people are sort of trading forecasts of how many jobs are going to get destroyed by the robots. This is pointless. We don't know. And it depends on what the, not only the policy reaction, but how firms adjust to it and what their economic incentives are and are there markets for the new products that they make they might come along with and, and so on. And I'm very sceptical about some of the forecasts. I don't think truck drivers are going to be made redundant by robots anytime soon. So we're not talking in my view about the really important questions which is what are the skills needs really you know, and the kind of curriculum that we have is it really delivering those skills? I think the answer is obviously not but there's no proper discussion of how you would develop a curriculum for a much more automated robotised future, none at all and we're not talking about um, the adjustment costs and how you get people through those transitions that we know can destroy people's livelihoods
0: Final question, when you think about the future, when you think over the next, say, 10, 20 years, and we're going through these profound social changes, we are changing the way we think about and measure economic well-being. But that phrase, adjustment costs, it sometimes feels like it's going to be adjustment from here on in. The pace of this is such that we're not going to emerge the other side in this new economy, which we measure better, and we're better equipped for, that disruption is going to be the story of our lives. Am I being too gloomy when I think that? Is it just my age speaking? Almost certainly your
1: age speaking. Um,
0: (laughs) Will my kids be fine?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think if it were only a technological adjustment that we had to make, that happens a lot anyway. And it's when those adjustments are made deeper or more sudden because they're, they're interacting with other changes that are going on. In the early 80s, the other changes that were going on were political, it was deregulation and uh, privatisation and the very sharp increase in the value of the pound. So that all compounded it and made it much more serious. So I would worry now that it's going to interact with trade wars and geopolitical disturbances and the consequences of brexit if there's anything disorderly in terms of the transition there and those things interacting i think could make you very gloomy indeed
0: so in a way interconnectivity is the biggest challenge of all here yes further reading related to today's episode is at tppodcast underscore we did a whole series of guides over the summer if you'd like to listen to those we will tweet the links as well The next guide is going to be with John Norton, and he is going to be telling us all about Facebook. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
1: Cheerful note.
0: You're much more cheerful than Martin Rees, who was telling us that we are all absolutely doomed.